This is Alicia Free, a badass belly dancer, musician, and real food enthusiast, here to help you feel a little lighter. Each show will dive into music that makes us want to dance. We'll share secrets of looking smoking hot in costume and everyday life. We'll dote on delicious whole food that makes us glow. And I'll throw in a damn sexy dance move you can try at home. I am pleased to feature another leader in the Salampur school and community, Sabria Tekbilek. What a lovely Turkish name. Sabria is the daughter of renowned Turkish musician Haji Ahmed Tekbilek. Her uncle Omer Faruk Tekbilek is also a famous musician, and her mother Lisa Jalan is known for pioneering belly dance in Sweden. So Sabria grew up with Middle Eastern music and dance in her home, and she also formally studied Middle Eastern dance and flamenco and ballet. Sabria studied with both Suhaila and Jamila as a college student at Berkeley, and she began teaching belly dance after that. Like Abigail Keys, another amazing dancer that we have featured on A Little Lighter, Sabria is also one of the few dancers in the world to hold level five certification in both the Suhaila and Jamila formats. She has taught and performed all over the world. In 2005, Sabria began her 12-year run of dancing all over the Gulf and North Africa. She worked at the five-star nightclub Harun al-Rashid in Cairo alongside the legendary Dina, also known as the last of the belly dance legends of Egypt. And she regularly performs all over the world for dignitaries and with other Arabic music stars. Let's start with a reflection and ritual that just might light up your life. Do you have a danceable ritual you would like to share? Danceable ritual. Whenever I'm on the move somewhere, that really inspires me to visualize and think about dance. It's not always possible to physically move, like if I'm on the subway or something like that. But like when I'm driving, I love visualizing and coming up with creative thoughts about dance and what I want to do dance-wise. You only have the music and the road, and it's like such a clean palette to think about things. I guess that's the closest thing that I would think of. Then I do have rituals that I do, like getting ready for work. I really try to clear my mind, like when I'm doing my makeup and doing my hair, I give myself time to do it. And at this point, I can do it pretty fast. (laughs) But I give myself a lot of time to do it just to sort of get in a different space. I wish I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) My three-year-old loves it when I get ready for gigs. (laughs) I love that you brought in more of a visualizing dance aspect of preparing. I've definitely been on those car rides blasting this song that you really want to internalize, right? And you're Mm -hmm. just running through all these possibilities in your head. Exactly. And then it usually doesn't turn out that way. (laughs) Right. But the more I do it, the more it actually can turn out that way. Ooh, I find reality comes closer to what you visualized. Yeah, the more you do it, it's like athletes are often encouraged to visualize like a skier is asked to visualize going down the slope and what it's going to feel like and what it's going to be like and all of that. And I think it's easier to match up the two if you do it a lot, visualize and then go on stage and visualize and go on stage. But if you're just doing one or the other, then it doesn't work. Great point. If you have a danceable ritual you want to share, please visit aliciafree.com, that's A-L-I-C-I-A, free, F-R-E-E, and click on the Facebook icon and post your ritual. We want to see who you are and what makes you want to dance. Now it's time for some music. Danceable song. 
Is there a danceable song you want to share? I have so many danceable songs, so many danceable songs. <laughs> I love. It's also really hard to choose one, but you mentioned Zayalasa. I love the song. I really wasn't that familiar with it before I was in the Middle East, but it's one of those songs that was in the repertoire. A lot of people dance to it. A lot of people sing it. And I really got to love it. Just in case you didn't catch it, the name of the song is Zeel Asel, Just Like Honey. I feel like it has a lot of different parts to it, and so that makes it interesting to dance to. I think a lot of the problems with a lot of new stuff that comes out is that it's more monotone or like monorhythmic, so it doesn't offer the dancer a chance to highlight different sections of the music because the music is all the same, if that makes sense. Yeah, a lot of shabby, for example. Yeah, just kind of monotonous. And not in the trance-inducing kind of way, like a traditional Moroccan piece, but in a very just pop kind of way, yeah. right? <laughs> Yeah. And I've danced it for so long, too, that it's had different meanings at different points, depending on what's going on in my life at that point. But the song is a love song, like 99.9% of the songs. <laughs> but it's about a rare love, like the singer is singing to this person. She's never met anybody like him or seen anybody like him. So it's very exuberant in a way. <laughs> Is it about honey too? Yeah, the chorus of the song. It's like she's comparing the love to honey. <laughs> the sweetness of it? I guess it could be the sweetness of it, but she doesn't mention the taste of honey. <laughs> <laughs> But one thing that I think it's kind of sweet about it is the crescendo of it is like honey, ah. <laughs> honey, and it's like even a Western pop song. It's like ooh baby baby, <laughs> so innocent in a way. Like, His so love cool. comes over my heart just like honey. Exactly, yeah. Oh, the lyrics are really pretty. Mm -hmm. And so when you were working in the Middle East, what did the song mean to you? Sometimes a love song can be like about somebody that you're infatuated with at some point, And sometimes it's about whatever experience you're having. It could be your love for dancing, you know, like getting to dance and perform to live music can be a love affair. And I've certainly felt that many times that the song represents sweet, pure joy at that moment. Being an artist can also be very torturous. <laughs> but at that moment, it's just sort of the sweetness of it. Wonderful. So, hey, was talking about dancing to live music in the Middle East and saying it's an addiction. Oh, totally. You get off the stage and you just want more. I feel that way about my band as we're all in isolation, not able to play music for each other, dance for each other. But yeah. I can't imagine what that's like being in a much more historic context of intercontinental hotel in Cairo <laughs> with a 30-piece band. I just can't even imagine. Yeah, and then that's comparable to drugs in that respect too because, you know, you get sort of better and like more expensive drugs at higher doses and then, you know, you don't get the same kind of high. I mean, I'm not above performing almost anywhere. You know, I think every venue has a merit and it's always good to perform. But, you know, if you've danced to like a 30-piece band and you've had the optimal scenario and the great audience that is also culturally aware, it makes dancing at other venues not as enticing but I usually find that it's fun anyway like I love dancing for workshop situations for other dancers and I know they appreciate dance in a different way and also I think it's fun to watch Hoflas like if I'm teaching a workshop and there's a show I always appreciate seeing dancers at any level dancing to any type of music I think it's all interesting and it all has its place well said
Your family plays so many instruments so well. Tell us what it was like to grow up as the daughter of famous Turkish folk musician Haji Ahmet Tekbilek. <laughs> I have a baby picture of my dad holding me as he's playing a trap drum set. And I'm thinking, I look like I'm two weeks old in the picture. I can't imagine having like drums played in my ear. It was good for me at the time. <laughs> but that's like my life in a nutshell. In retrospect, I'm really glad that I had that exposure to music. At the time, I might not have appreciated it every moment. <laughs> I had a pretty unorthodox upbringing in that sense. My dad's definitely a quirky musician. He took my toys and turned them into instruments. Like I have a bouncy ball horse that he turned into a bagpipe. And you know, when you're three, that's not, that's not fun. <laughs> you're just sad. <laughs> you don't have a toy anymore. But now, of course, I look back at it and I laugh at it. And I think it, what's interesting is just being around somebody that's so creative. My dad's music is so much his life. He makes instruments or he plays instruments or he's just always in the pursuit of music. And it's fascinating. <laughs> and now it's fun because I also have a love for music. And so it's a place where we can connect and we can bond on that interest. But I gain some things and then you sort of also have to put up with some things. Right. Now, did you go to his gigs with him sometimes or were you part of festivals or events where he was playing when you were younger? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. You know, he's pretty much only worked as a musician his whole life. Going to his gigs was definitely part of growing up. We've also worked together a bit. Just a few years ago in Sweden, he called me up and he's like, hey, you're at the gig that I have tonight. <laughs> I said, oh, really? But yeah, definitely. Also, when I was really young, my mom was still dancing. And so there was a lot of going with my parents to gigs. Would your mom perform with your father? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. That's how they met. Oh my goodness. That's how they met. Yeah. She was already a professional dancer when she met him? Yeah. They met in Sweden because she was basically the only dancer. and He was one of the few musicians that played Middle Eastern music. So yeah, they were sort of brought together through that. Wow. And Omar Farouk Tekbilek is your uncle. Mm -hmm. And it looks like they used to play in the Sultans when he lived in Rochester, New York. Yeah. Farouk had the Sultans, I believe. I was very young at this point. I don't have any memory of it, but I know that the Sultans were pretty popular with the belly dance community, had some albums that were good dance music. I mean, I was thrilled because I grew up just outside of Rochester. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, there's belly dance history here that I didn't even realize. So it's pretty great. And both your uncle Farouk and your father play Sufi music as well. Sort of. Like, you know, a lot of Sufi music is nine music. Of course, nine music you have in any sort of genre. When the boys were young, there were six boys and one girl, and they were all given prospective jobs or apprentice placements. And Farouk was supposed to do religious studies and maybe become an imam. So he has always been into that sort of spiritual aspect. So they can play Sufi music, but they definitely don't do that exclusively or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, they've played in Sufi music context, but that's yeah. not their primary exactly, yeah. genre. Cool. So the song Mevlana, our band plays. Mm -hmm. And I know it's not Sufi music, but it's under that umbrella, you know, where it's, wait, are we supposed to dance this? Is this acceptable? And I've asked different musicians. And are you familiar with the song Mevlana? No, not really. Not off the bat. Okay. So I was going to ask you too, what your take was on it or whether or not it's okay to dance to. 
I think I would advise dancers not to dance to Sufi music, but it's really hard to know what is and what isn't Sufi music. So if there's any music that has lyrics that are religious, I would definitely stay away. There's so much other stuff to dance to that you won't run the risk of offending somebody, but you can always dance to it at home, in your home. <laughs> I totally agree. With the song Mevlana, there are no lyrics to it, but Mevlana is another name for Rumi, mm-hmm. right? Nobody really knows where it came from. So that one's a tricky one. Yes, it's great when you have have the signal of lyrics and then there's all the confusing parts where so many songs say oh my god what do you know all those yeah. different things you're like wait i keep on hearing the word allah yeah. or you know this uh shabby musician's name is muhammad ramadan like it yeah. could get more religious than that name but that song you sing is not religious you know so there's all these different confusing parts of it too funny story my friend and i were in turkey during ramadan and she called some of her friends and we're making dinner plans and she said oh wait 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 what about ramadan and they said he can come too <laughs> They weren't really fasting yet. That's cute. They call it iftar in Turkey too? Yeah. Cool. I was in Indonesia a couple different times during Ramadan and it's lovely to see the way people celebrate. Yeah. It's coming up now. I have some friends that are sort of stranded and quarantined and sad to not be with their family during this time. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of Zoom iftar, I bet. Yeah. Hey, hey. Just wanted to add that this interview was recorded in April 2020. So Ramadan has come and gone. Just wanted to make that clear. All right, I'm going to talk about your mom a little bit here. Your mother, Lisa Jelan, is known for pioneering belly dance in Sweden. What are some of the things your mother has taught you about belly dance? First of all, I just have to tell you a story about my mom because she hates that she's always referred to as a pioneer in my bios because she thinks that everybody's going to think of like a pioneer woman in a wagon. (laughs) (laughs) With big boots. (laughs) But she was one of the first people in Sweden who did belly dancing. She was working as a dancer up until I was about seven I guess and so just seeing somebody working and living as an artist that was a valuable lesson just that on its own it was pretty ballsy and gutsy and you know you see the work ethic that it takes to do that I think if you come to dance and you don't know what it's like then it's easy to have these sort of romantic ideas of what it's like to live as a professional dancer but growing up in that environment from an early age made me see what living and working as an artist full-time really meant so I didn't have any sort of romantic illusions about the glamorous life or, you know, sort of being relaxed and you just get to practice your art and it's a hustle. And then dance wise, I just saw a lot when I was growing up. So I have a lot of visual memories of my mom dancing, but she had stopped by the time that I wanted to belly dance, but I got her to teach me for like an hour when I was 13. And then she said, okay, that's enough. I don't remember anything else. If you want to learn more, you have to go take classes. Oh, she handed you over. Yeah, she did. But she took classes with Jamila. Oh, nice. Yeah. So when I started doing Salampur classes, some of it was familiar. <laughs> Not the Sahela stuff. That was all new. But still, there was a certain familiarity to it. Wonderful. So did your family move out to California too, or were they still based in Sweden when you went to Berkeley? So my mom is from California. I was born in Sweden. So my mother and I moved back to the States when I was nine. So she was in California from then on. And I kind of went back and forth between California and Sweden. Great. So your mom was in California during the Jamila era. Yes. She was a teenager. Oh, wow. We actually already featured one of your dance moves in the interview in episode 36 with Anna Horn. It's the turn you do where you stop turning, but your hair keeps going and swinging around. (laughs) 
<laughs> in a lot of your videos, it's such a pretty turn. And I was so glad that Anna really brought my attention to what was going on, where your hair is just kind of the punctuation on the end of the sentence. I don't know if I could take credit for that being my move, but I can imagine it. And I realize I do do that <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it's a beautiful move. And I linked to it in the show notes of episode 36, a part of one of your performances where you do that turn. Mm -hmm. What damn sexy dance move would you like to share? Damn sexy dance move. Oh, you know, it's so funny because I don't think of myself as being a very sexy dancer. <laughs> Are you for real? <laughs> I mean, yes and no. Like, I always joke with people and I tell them that it's my dream in life to be vulgar, but I can never pull it off. And I know that's not the same as being sexy, but I have walked off stage in a mesh skin colored dress that barely covers anything and felt like I was just really trying to <laughs> put it out there. <laughs> I got off stage. The manager was like, oh, you know, you really make it like the ballet. You are so elegant when you dance. And I was like, no. <laughs> you were trying to push the envelope. Yeah. So I feel like that's so in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> you know, I think I need to change the wording of this question. I guess is there like a go-to move or a move that you have perfected, you're really proud of? Oh my God, there's so many moves that I really like doing. Oh, the Algerian shimmy. That's a pretty one, right? Where you got your scarf real low, kind of halfway down your butt. Yeah, I love the Algerian shimmy. <laughs> I have another funny story about the Algerian shimmy. During the finale number of Balanat, I did it in Belgium one year. And I sort of ran out to the center. And as I did, I stubbed my toe. So it felt like my second toe was dislocated. <laughs> And I remember very vividly doing the Algerian shimmy and not being able to put any weight on it. So, you know, how you're in releve and you step one foot forward a little bit and then back in place and then the other foot. So when I took the other foot out, it was like dislocated. It was pretty tricky. Ooh. And I tried to spot it on the video, but I couldn't, which I was glad of. <laughs> Nicely done. But when I worked in Tunisia, I could see similarities between the Algerian shimmy and some of the other hip work that I saw done in North Africa. There is sort of that choo-choo quality to a lot of the hip work there. And even the footwork, there's some similarity to it. I've never danced in Algeria, but Tunisia, there's something similar to it. Cool. And you're talking about the footwork. So you're up in Releve, mm -hmm. and then you step back, you were saying? Yes. Yeah. So you're starting to bring your right foot forward. You know, you're parallel, so into jazz fourth, and then you bring it back into jazz first, and then you bring your left foot out into a jazz fourth. Mm. I love the way it looks. It just looks so loose to me, like really relaxed. Like it's usually slower than a choo-choo shimmy, wouldn't you say? Depends what time. True. <laughs> Where the tempo is. Yeah, ideally it looks loose. But I think that's the hard part is getting that loose quality when it actually is really hard and fast. And if you're trying to do it precise, it's tricky. But you want to be able to do all of that and still have a relaxed quality to it. I guess that's kind of a lot of belly dance moves in a nutshell. It's hard, <laughs> technically, <laughs> but you want to make it look like you're really enjoying it. <laughs> Yeah. Cool. Any other dance move that you want to talk about? I don't know. I don't really think so much in terms of moves, even though I know I have certain go-to moves. But I try to think of dancing as just being freer than moves. And I think that's one of the nice things about having the Suhila format training is that you kind of get out of thinking of only in terms of steps, but you think of, you know, your feet are doing one thing, your hips are doing something else, your arms are doing something else, maybe your upper body is doing something. And so you can just sort of try to take in the music and interpret it through your whole body as opposed to doing a step. 
Of course, I still do a lot of steps, but I try to think of movement in that way. More of a holistic. Yeah, a sort of a full body expression. And even when I do a step, like for example, if I'm doing an Algerian shimmy, I don't want it to think of doing just that. Like maybe I will do just that, but I want the rest of my body to be open to interpreting other parts of the music. Like maybe the Algerian shimmy is catching the rhythm, but maybe I want to catch some part of the melody with my arms or with my upper body or something else who knows <laughs> nice Saidi is one of my very favorite dance styles and I see that you teach it mm -hmm. what do you think about or embody when you're doing a Saidi piece I think Saidi is so fun because it's both fun and earthy there's just kind of down home quality to it that I love and a groundedness and I just love all of the traditional Saidi instruments and that's one of the things that I've taken with me growing up with my dad is he loves Mizmar and he plays Mizmar so that sound is just like home and comfort for me so I think it embodies so much soul it's like soul music yeah Saidi's like soul music yeah my soul <laughs> I feel it's soul how are Egyptian style cane dances and Lebanese style cane dances different well as far as I know and there could be some village that I haven't seen or haven't been to that would say something otherwise but there isn't a traditional Lebanese cane dance like Saidi so Lebanese dancers dance with a cane as sort of their version of Saidi but like Saidi people dance with canes and sticks because they were actually things there <laughs> When I was in Cairo during the revolution, my doorman, I came down and he had like a stick and I associated it with dancing, right? And then I realized he brought his stick out because that was his weapon. <laughs> and so a lot of Saidi dancing with sticks is sort of like play fighting, kind of capoeira-ish. And then you have like a herding culture. Now there are herders in Lebanon too, but it's not a traditional dance. And then even with Saeed, you could argue what is traditional and what was sort of something that Reda created as a way of interpreting what he saw in the Saeed region. So that was the Reda folkloric troupe? Yeah. I can't remember what the proper name is. Yes. Yeah, so Mahmoud Reda was the founder of the Reda troupe. Lebanese dancing, belly dancing doesn't have that sort of same tradition, but they have music that's kind of similar sounding. There's Debki music or Lebanese country music, and there's air quotes over the country, has similar sounds to Saeed music and so sometimes you'll do a cane dance to Lebanese music that is like Saidi inspired but it's actually a relatively new thing yeah because it has the Zerna or the Bismar and the Dawul those two elements make it seem very similar yeah and sometimes it's done with a Saidi rhythm I think that's another thing that people get confused about is the term Saidi can mean so many things and I always bring this up when I teach Saidi that if a song is from the Said region it might not have a Saidi rhythm in it. If a song has a Saidi rhythm, it might not be from the Said region. So <laughs> it gets kind of confusing. And then just the term Saidi means anything coming from the Said region. So there's all sorts of Saidi things. There's Saidi dialect, there's people from Said. It's just such a broadly used term. Thank you for explaining Saidi more. <laughs> So you also do haliji, which is another dance style I'm in love with. Do I say it correctly too? There's no actual ka in the beginning, right? Haliji, yeah, that's correct. In okay. Egypt, people say haligi often, but that's because they don't pronounce the J sound. They do hard Gs. But in the haliji region, they say haliji. <laughs> I saw a solo that you did with a drummer. It's mm -hmm. just the two of you on stage. It was gorgeous. I think it was the end of that one. He was playing Ayub and you brought in the haliji moves, the hair throws. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips on how 
how to include Haliji hair moves in belly dance? I think that it should be motivated by the music. And what I worry about the most is that people just hurt themselves. <laughs> and when I teach Haliji workshops, I try to always break down how to move your neck using your whole body as a counterweight so that you're not really just trying to twist your neck around. It's not just coming from the neck only or the head, but you're using your whole body. It keeps you a little bit safer. It's still not good for you. It's still not great for your neck. But yeah, if you're going to put it in, I think it should be motivated by the music. But that's pretty much what I would say for anything. Like if you're going to insert anything into your dancing, it should be motivated by what is in the music. Great. Point. I've heard Haliji people say it comes from the chest. I love how you're saying it comes from your whole body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I even break down how you shift your weight in your feet because I think you really just have to work out of the floor even to get your head to move. <laughs> I was at a party, the most amazing musicians. It's a medieval festival that I go to. And I was sitting next to my friend who's a kanun player. Not sitting, we were dancing on the floor next to each other. And the music just said, Haliji, you know, and we both started throwing our hair like crazy. And I remember I stopped and I looked at her and she was still going. And I looked up at the drummer right in front of me. And he just looked at me like, keep on going. And I kept going. Maybe it was because I was drinking a lot, but my brain wasn't quite right for about a day after <laughs> Yeah, I've had chiropractors chew me out and say that I was giving myself whiplash on a night yeah. like this. And I have a feeling that it's like going to catch up to me one day. <laughs> it does feel really good, though. You do get that experience of almost trance or it's like a drug a little bit where it's, I'm not supposed to be doing it this much, but a taste of it. You're like, I just want to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, doing a little bit sometimes will just crack my neck in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. I feel like I'm really missing something when I do a deb key. And I think I'm walking too gently, maybe not stomping enough. Do you have any tips on how to do a deb key like a local at a festival or a wedding? Oh, this is so hard. I think with all these folkloric genres, what's really hard to pick up and then also to teach and to convey to people is this sort of essential groove of each genre. Each genre has like a certain weight placement. And I compare it to being on a track. If you you're doing it right it kind of just goes smoothly and then if you like wobble off the track it just feels really awkward and is bad <laughs> and so you have to find those ruts and just find those grooves to stay on the track and I think there's a few essential things that you can do and that is to really analyze the weight placement because I think that's where the secret lies is where is the center of gravity in that genre of movement with both Saidi and Debki there's a certain bounce and even Khaliji actually there's a bounce to it but it's sort of of bouncing into the floor rather than out of the floor. And so I think of just allowing yourself to carry your weight much lower in your body. And then I think there's just something that you learn from mimicking it. I mean, that's how little kids pick it up too, right? Is, you know, if you grow up in that environment, you see people moving that way and it becomes more natural to you. And so I think there's so much value in just putting on a YouTube clip. And now, oh my God, we have so much. Like I didn't really see much Debki until I got to the Middle East. I was the only time I could see it on a regular basis. But then now on YouTube, you could just pull up a Debki clip and I say mimic 8-bit. Just try to do it because you just have to practice it over and over again. I think on the Salampur School website, they have a whole YouTube playlist of Debki mm -hmm. that's really spot on. Because you can see a lot of Debki. It's interesting. There'll be the folk dance clubs in the US. And I love that people do all these folk line dances. Mm -hmm. But there's something missing a lot of the time because they're recreating it out of context and all that good stuff. But when you see people that joy, you know, they're 
together in a club somewhere and they're just young and wild and they're doing the dev key. There's just so much there. I just want to experience it. Yeah, there's one place I used to work at in Dubai and they were known for the waiters and even some of the, like, the regulars at the club would get up at the end of the night and they would do a dev key and they would practice. They would like rehearse over this and they did all these amazing tricks and acrobatic things after the actual show, but people would sort of stick around to see these guys dance. It was really amazing. I've put a couple clips on my Instagram at some point, but there's nothing like seeing it live. It's really amazing. The first time I saw Debki live was in LA and I said, what's going on? You know, I'm there with my Iranian friend. She said, I think they're from the Gulf. And there were these women in mini skirts and high heels. She was like, I think they're brothers and sisters too. And they were all holding hands, doing these deep knee bends with these mini skirts on and high heels. And I was just so impressed. It's like, I don't even understand how they're getting up out of that so fast or at all. But yeah. And what's your Instagram? Sabria Tekbalek. All right. And that's S-A-B-R-I-Y-E. So it's almost like the second half of your name is Rye, but there's an I in between the R and the Y. Correct. Yeah. It's a very common ending for Turkish female names, I-Y-E. Even Turkey in Turkish is written Turkiye with the same I-Y-E ending. Ah, and so it almost sounds a little bit like an uh instead of an E sound too at the end. Yeah. And your website is sabriatekbilek.com, correct? Nobody else could have had that site. (laughs) (laughs) Most fun, I was researching the name Tekbilek because to me it sounds very Turkish and I don't know why. And I was like, oh, is this a common Turkish last name? No, it's not a common Turkish last name. It's actually- No, right? No, there's a story behind it. My grandfather took the name because it means one-wristed because he was in an accident and he lost one of his hands from his wrist down. And so from then on, he was Mustafa the one-wristed. Now it's just his children, I guess we're three generations, who are all unwristed. <laughs> wow, that's like a mafioso kind of move. Coming from my Sicilian background, I'm like, oh, the one-wristed. <laughs> I think I have like the least glamorous stage name ever. It's the patient one-wristed. <laughs> Well, most of us don't know that, at least, you know, the non-Turkish speaking. <laughs> it sounds very beautiful, though. I mean, the translation's still cool, patient one-wristed. <laughs> you have to be patient if you only have one wrist. Now, let's take a moment to dote on delicious whole food that makes us dancers glow. Featured light in my body food. What is one vegan whole food ingredient you love? Oh my God, I love vegetables so much. <laughs> I'm all, does kale count? Because I love kale. Hell yeah. <laughs> How do you like to eat kale? Anyway, I like it sauteed. Usually I like to saute it with a little bit of garlic. That's probably the way I do it the most. But sometimes I have to cook it a little bit and then saute it because so it's not too tough. Yeah, you want it to stay bright green too, right? So if you blanch it first and then throw it in the frying pan, something yeah. like that. Exactly, yeah. I actually had kale for lunch. Kale and red quinoa, all those colors together, and this tahini nutritional yeast sauce. It was so nice. Sounds good. Cool, yeah. I think there was definitely another dancer who featured kale, and I'm glad it's coming into popularity now, but I'm eating kale out of my garden from last year, right now. Oh, wow. That I planted last summer. Really? And it's still growing? It's like halted and growing, but it's still beautiful. Wow. Yeah. And you know, it cooks faster Mm -hmm. because it's been through so much. (laughs) But yeah, I'm excited when we run out of greens after our 
monthly shopping trip as the times are because of this is coronavirus era recording here. Yeah. I get so excited. I'm like, I'm going to go to my garden over there and I'm going to get some kale and have some lunch. Yeah. Homegrown, baby. I planted it last summer, last spring, and I'm still eating it yeah. in April of the next year. It's just such an amazing, you know, apocalyptic vegetable. Totally. Yeah, great. And I love it when people say they love vegetables. I do too. There's just so much to love. Yes. I grew up in Santa Cruz when I was in California when I was a kid and it's total hippie veggie land place. <laughs> you guys have that space themed vegan diner, right? Saturn Cafe. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> is that what it is? Right. It's got all the really cool 80s album covers and things like that inside. Yeah, I think it's Saturn Cafe. It must be. Oh. Let's play dress up. Make you shine costume tip. So what is one costume tip you want to share? I have owned so many costumes in my lifetime and I don't know how much money I've spent on it. Honestly, I don't want to know. <laughs> but I find that with costumes, I would get like a bunch of costumes after Ramadan. So I would fly usually from the Emirates or wherever through Turkey and then I would place an order with Bella and then I would come back when Ramadan was ending and I would pick up the order and then I've gotten a lot of stuff from Imam Zeki throughout the years. And there's this sort of like <laughs> battle between costumes that are really gorgeous but maybe you feel inhibited when you actually wear it and perform in it and then you have costumes that I call pajama costumes because they're just like putting on jammies they're so comfortable and so I would always find that you buy a bunch and then I would gravitate towards certain ones just because they were so comfortable and I learned after a while that if any costume made me feel in the least bit inhibited it was better just to get rid of it and get something else because that's the worst getting up on stage and feeling that you can't move the way that you want to move and then in terms of choosing costuming, I think that it's important to know what you're working with. Like I know the shape of my body and there are certain things that I know I just can't wear. Like I don't look good in mermaid skirts. I have a really small rib cage. So I have to think of my body trying to achieve a sort of hourglass. I have to like puff up the top and then not accentuate my hips because I have enough hips. <laughs> I know other dancers, like one of my colleagues in Dubai, she was a lovely Brazilian dancer. She was kind of narrow in the hips. And so she would always wear things that were voluminous in the hips. So I think you just sort of have to figure out where you're at and then wear something that you feel flatters your figure. And then you also feel much better going on stage if you feel that you're wearing something flattering. There were two designers that you named. Could you spell their names? Bella, B-E-L-L-A, in Turkey. That's the brand name. That's the brand name, okay. The woman's name is Evan, but she took over the business from her mother. They also have, or they had a shop in Belgium, in Ghent, but I'm not sure if they're still there. And then Iman Zeki, E-M-A-N, then Z-A-K-I. And where are they based? She is in Cairo. And her sister too, Hoda Zeki, H-O-D-A. And they work out of the same workshop in Cairo. Wonderful. You wear a lot of the costumes that have the thin band that's separate than the skirt that's just above your skirt line. Mm -hmm. Do you have to tape that so it stays in place? Like, I just never understand how those <laughs> things stay right there. No, no. If it fits, it shouldn't move. They have to sit pretty tight around the hips. It's become kind of a trend to have things that sit higher up on the waist, and I don't like it. <laughs> I like things to sit really low on the waist because I just feel like it shows off hip work better. 
there's some sort of like higher waist stuff that's kind of 40s inspired and that can look nice too but I am a proponent of a low waistband sometimes even though the skirt is sewn in so the skirt isn't on a separate elastic but if it is on a separate elastic sometimes I'll either snap it onto the skirt or pin it so that it doesn't move yeah your costumes are so gorgeous I mean I make my costumes out of random things I find in India and <laughs> just all, all kinds of interesting things. And then you have these beautiful designer costumes. It's a whole different aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing where you get them and how you do that. I make some costumes too. I've made costumes myself, but usually by the time I finish making it, I'm like sick of looking at it and I'll just sell it. And I hope <laughs> <laughs> Nice. And when I see dancers with really fancy headdresses on, I love them. You know, all the beautiful crowns that people are wearing and amazing hairdos. I want my hair to be free. And I think the performances that I've seen do too, it's I don't want my hair to be tied. Yeah, I can't because I've always had to do collegiate and I want to be able to do whatever without it, you know, having to take off a hairband or something or a crown. I mean, you could do like a thin, maybe headband, but no, (laughs) I like it to be free. I'm with you. Mm -hmm. It's just like the rest of your costume if you feel inhibited by it you're probably not going to wear it a lot yeah. you know or feel comfortable doing what the music calls you to do exactly if you have a costume tip to share please send it my way via facebook or an email through my site as will duran said we are what we repeatedly do so let us repeatedly do what the divinely lovely do feel good look goddess habit do you have a feel-good, look-good habit that you want to share? Hmm. Feel-good, look-good habit? I don't know, but I can say this. As I've gotten older, <laughs> I'm probably, like, objectively in the worst shape that I've ever been in. <laughs> Just because that's life and that's nature. But I feel comfortable in my skin in the way that I didn't when I was 20 because I was more neurotic about the way I looked. And now I feel like I have this sort of acceptance of my body because it's given me so much. Like, it's given me my work and my career (laughs) having such a physical job I'm just really grateful for my body and I think of my body in that sense and then I feel good how it served your purpose yeah and it keeps going (laughs) I'm healthy I mean knock on wood that's as feel good as you can get just to be healthy and not have anything majorly wrong great now I've had some people also say they put coconut oil on their hair as a mask or they meditate you know all these different things do you have any kind kind of beauty routine doesn't have to be something that's aesthetic you know that you feel like has really helped you oh my god you're talking to me in corona times I don't know because when I was working seven nights a week it felt like the Golden Gate Bridge like as soon as I was done I had to start over manicures and pedicures and waxing hair dyeing and like a constant maintenance you know it was just sort of like everything constantly eyebrows and oh now it's kind of nice to be free of all those things Mm-hmm. I mean, of all those things, I do really like a pedicure because once again, your feet, they take the hardest beating. Yeah, there's nothing like a pedicure. And I have to recommend, now it's really common to do the paraffin wax thing, you know, where you dip your feet in paraffin wax. Have you had that? No, I don't know about this. A lot of pedicure places do it. I love it because I feel like all the little capillaries in my feet just sort of get re-energized and I can feel it like up through my calves. I really like that. Do you ever massage your own feet? No. I have a boyfriend for that. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> when I read a book by an Iraqi dancer, I have to look up what book it was. And she talked about massaging her own feet. That changed my life. Just being able to really dig into the different parts. If I've been cooking for three hours or you're dancing around a fire, or, you know, all those kinds of things. And it makes such a difference. 15 minutes and I feel yeah. completely different. Probably similar to how you feel with a pedicure. Yes. Tell us about something exciting that you have coming up. I'm really looking forward to finding out what's going to happen. <laughs> mm. Well, that's what I look forward to. I do have these trips to Cairo. That's what I was doing before Corona. And eventually they'll be back on when people can travel and people can afford to travel. And that's week-long trips where I take people out to nightclubs just to see what's really happening in the nightclub scene. And so it's not focused on like historical things or the touristy things, which are fabulous. And if anybody wants to do that, I think that's great. I just wanted to offer a sort of view into the Cairo nightlife specifically. And there is a little bit of time to do touristic stuff if anybody wants to, or they can tack on more days. Or there's also lots of people doing different types of tours, but this one is the hardcore clubbing one. And eventually it'll be back on. I love how you wrote something about seedy venues too. Ooh, from glam five-star hotels to the seediest cabarets. I was like, ooh. Yes. That's what got me because the five-star hotels, I feel like you can find out about those fairly easily. But if you have somebody that takes you into the more organic, <laughs> more gritty venues, I'm like, that would be amazing. It is super fun. And it's definitely an amazing place for people watching. But one thing, actually, I have to lament the dying out of five-star venues because it's just a different type of show. And now there are more seedy and mid-level venues than there are really good five-star venues. And the type of show that you would see in a five-star venue is kind of dying out. And that's sad because that's like, in my opinion, where you could see a more artistic show. It's really hard to do a really artistic show in the seedy your venues because they're just geared towards tips or you have to dance just for this audience that's there so if it's like a very Khaliji audience you might end up dancing primarily to Khaliji music or Libyan or something else so it's sort of a battle because those are the places where you still get really huge bands but it's not a very artistic place and then you get kind of touristy venues where you have smaller bands but maybe the show can be a little bit more traditional and tableau in the sense that you do lots of different things as opposed to just catering to whatever audience is there that night but it's a very watered down version of that because you have these tiny little bands and it's also still kind of limited by this touristy venue and it sometimes becomes kind of hokey yeah the one time i went to egypt i was on a tour with my mother and father and the dancer that we went to see she was not good <laughs> She just was, you know, and I'd only been dancing for a couple of years. The best dancer I saw was a guy going crazy on a Nile boat with a big belt buckle. And he was amazing, <laughs> you know, but yeah. So I, so someday that's a dream come true trip right there to go to these venues with you. And hopefully the five-star hotels will make a comeback yeah. with, the, yeah. with the fancy clubs. Hopefully that big stage show would be desirable again to audiences at some point. I hope. I've talked to a lot of people about it and I think there is a portion of the audience that's really missing that type of venue, but we'll see. We will see. Mm -hmm. Sabria, thank you so much for your very down to earth and very in touch with the dance form and its birthplaces and your history tying back to California and your mom studying with Jamila and you studying with Jamila and Suhaila. It's just such a treat to have you here and have you share your wisdom with us. Well, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's 
been a pleasure. And yes, every video that I've watched of Sabria dance on YouTube is stunning. So please, <laughs> if you want to see some really excellent, skilled, beautiful belly dance, look her up on YouTube if you haven't already. Thanks. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please subscribe and let your friends know what you got out of this show. Dance with me on YouTube, listen to the music I've selected for you on Spotify, and try some free vegan recipes on AliciaFree.com. This is Alicia Free, hoping this show helps you feel a little lighter.